There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Alina, who do we have with us today? We've gone out and found some really, 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 really interesting history for you. So I'm really excited to introduce to you Nea Mai, who is an MPhil student at Trinity College, Dublin, uh, is concentrating on international history. And today we're going to be talking about, wait for it ladies and gentlemen, French colonial rule in Vietnam. We have got some Vietnamese history. I am so bloody excited. Hi, welcome onto our podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. This is something we've been dying to get a hold of, a uh, part of history that we don't, haven't yet had on this podcast so um, I think instead of us chatting, I know that everybody's sitting there thinking, Elena, stop talking. We want to start talking about history. So I think we're going to launch into our first question. Yes, let's go. Let's start with consolidation of French rule in Vietnam. When did this happen and what problems did it cause among the traditional ruling elite? Oh, I guess, you know, the, the, the thing with um, the kind of consolidation of French rule in Vietnam, it was a lot. It was actually a, a long period, a significant period of around 20 to 30 years. Um, like the French, uh, French, the, the French started uh, basically their uh, military campaigns, uh, particularly in the southern part of the country, from the 1860s, and then uh, we, and then the imperial court had to cede that part to uh, to the French uh, by essentially the late 18, uh, 1860s, and from that period on, they continued to take control of the whole country. And during that time, there was a lot of yeah, there was a series of wars, and um, essentially they also had to secede, had to sign a series of a, essentially a humiliation, you know, hum- humiliating treaties, which eventually the French uh, took, in, in which they had to recognize uh, French, the French in quotes protection of Vietnam, uh, and effectively, uh, uh, French uh, Vietnam became a, a French territory by the late 1880s, in which they established the. Um, that the French Indochina was was called French Indochina, um, and during also during that time, um, because there was no, they actually divided uh, Vietnam into three different sections, different parts. Uh, so one, so the north was called Tonkin, and then the, the, the central part, which is technically still under the tradition of the imperial court, was called Ang Nam, and then the south was called Konkunchin, and that was and that part was actually a, a full fledged uh, French colony in which French laws applied, whereas oh, wow. the other parts were, were technically French protectorates. And at the same time, they also incorporated uh, what's now Laos and Cambodia. And that made it, and that's basically a French Indochina. So 1887, so that, that would be around like 1887. But even then, uh, they still had to find, uh, find times to, they still had to essentially pacify the country because there was still a lot of a series of like local uprisings uh, against the French. 
usually led by uh, like Mandarin, schol- uh, Mandarin scholars who uh, were not willing to su- uh, submit themselves to the to the French. Um, but um, but yes, yeah, so essentially, uh, I think it was the, among the uh, traditional elites who who were educated on the Confucian on, you know, on the Confucian philosophies and classics. Um, there was it was there was a lot of soul searching. Uh, in particular, um, because uh, they they had to there, there were a lot of intense debate on how to approach you know how to approach this problem how, the, the loss of uh, sovereignty the idea of you know, the, the loss of sovereignty and whether we are actually we are not as superior as we think we are. Yeah. Confucianism, um, something actually I really respect. Can you tell the listeners a little bit what Confucianism is? Uh, Confucian, well, I mean Confucianism, or as uh, as it's called in in other in Vietnamese and in Chinese is uh, so is the is scholarism is the the idea of uh, scholarism is the set of philosophies and uh, philosophies on governance and way of life, uh, how one should behave uh, in uh, in relation to others in society, and uh, so people and often uh, there's an emphasis on um, uh, things like um, obedience and the filial filial pieties, uh, loyalty to your to your parents to your to your ruler to to your ruler. Um, so, so set up is like a set of conduct. So it's a part religion, part political philosophies, and it, and it's been dictated, and it has been the dominant, essentially the dominant uh, philosophies in Vietnam, more or less around nine hundred years before the French came along. So, did the um, did the elite find any more problems apart from the Confucianism? I think the, there was a lot of issues to do with how to, how do we modernize, how do we keep up a modernized society because they were exposed to uh, a lot, you know technology that had not never really seen before um, um, uh, essentially how do we like improve ourselves um, to yeah, improve ourselves and some how we do we, how do we improve our, ourselves so there, so there was a lot of dilemma um, dilemma during that time and so, and so because the, the confusion even like within that traditional elites they were divided you know there were people who were willing to uh, collaborate with the new uh, French uh, the new French colonial system. There were actually there were who people who were out, uh, against it uh, to the point that you know they refused to refused to learn French. Um, they were also uh, trying to uh, engage. So let's talk about the reforms. There are a number of movements at the time, aren't there? Oh yeah, no, yeah, um, but they're all in- interconnected, uh, particularly around the earlier 20th century, like now in the 1900s. Um, yeah, so the, the, some of the movements. Um, so they were all started by. Um, by uh, the same that same traditional elites, uh, the Mandarin scholars, but a lot of them they were ex- exposed to ideas and books via translation via Chinese translation. Uh, this was what we call Deng uh, Tu, and they were essentially a translation of key European philosophy, uh, key European political philosophies. Uh, translation uh, from uh, by the, the ideas of uh, the likes of uh, Montesquieu, Jean Jacques Rousseau, uh, John Locke. Um, so they originally were translated in Japan during the Meiji Restoration, and they were imported into China, and they were absorbed by reformers such as uh, Lin Qichao and Kang Youwei. And then a lot of these ideas, a lot of these texts, were also eventually imported into Vietnam uh, via actually Chinese migrants who were encouraged to move to Vietnam under the French uh, colonial, uh, the French colonial system. And they brought a lot of these ideas, and because um, many of his rulers was, they were still able to read the, the classical Chinese, uh, they were able to read classical Chinese. Um, they were able to uh, read, uh, read, uh, read this text, uh, uh, absorb the, the idea, absorb the idea, and then uh, applying them to their own conditions. So, the, the, like, so, the, so a lot. So there were a number of prominent uh, manner, uh, 
uh, reformist Mandarin scholars, the, the people like Fang Bo Yao, uh, who led the movement called Dong Yu, so to travel eastward, where he actually uh, was moving to, to get Vietnamese students, as a bright Vietnamese student, to go to Japan to study to learn military tactics and hopefully to inspire so military uh, in, in insurrection in Vietnam to overthrow the French. And there were people like uh, Fang Chuchin, who were more, much more moderate, who advocated a more non-violent form of resistance, and uh, was more keen on essentially enlightenment, the idea of enlightenment, enlightening the local population, um, teaching them uh, you know, uh, European ideas, mathematics, um, uh, engaging in economic activities. Um, and but there was also the yeah, idea then they were establishing uh, schools as well like uh, to one particular example is the uh, Tonkin Free School uh, in Vietnamese so the schools were established for free and students could come in and they learn about they learn foreign languages science and math- uh, mathematics, mathematics as well as uh, Vietnamese uh, history so to, to create essentially to create a uh, more educated uh, population then you've got one more on your list and I'm not even going to try and pronounce it Everybody's gonna laugh. Uh, is the modernization one? Oh, yeah. Um, so they all, I think, uh, well, the thing is, they're all modernization. These movements were all modernizations, I think. But there's also one called Yui Tang, uh, which was very popular in the uh, central part of Vietnam. But that's the said, one, <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. But as I said before, a lot of these movements were interconnected and consistently because uh, all of the people who were involved with them all they all knew each other from their days as uh, basically uh, um, aspiring uh, scholars. Um, so a lot of these, so a lot of these people, they refuse, even though they they uh, they pass the traditional Confucian exam, they refuse to serve the uh, the imperial court. Um, so they because they thought that you know the imperial court essentially humiliated themselves by being defeated by the French, and it was so they had to take on their, uh, take up their own initiatives. But um, so yeah, a lot of this move, so a lot of this move were inspired by similar movements in the, in like in the likes of Qing China and also Japan, uh, particularly the. <clears throat> the the Tonkin Free School, uh, Tonkin Yeto, uh, was actually inspired by the Geijo Kaiju, which was very popular in Japan uh, during the Meiji Restoration. It's come up already, but let's just expand some more on instances of collaboration with the French. I think there were, um, yeah, to, in any sort of um, colonial setting, you're always going to have uh, collaborators. And I think a lot of them had been um, I think vilified in the past, particularly within the nationalist historiography. Um, but yeah, I think in, but in the case of Vietnam, there were certainly many um, essentially Mandarins who were who actually thought uh, that they would benefit from collaborating with the French, not only for them uh, for their personal uh, in the advancement, but also for uh, for the for the country, uh, for the country as well. Um, there were many, particularly there were a lot. Of, there were a few who were tra- initially trained as uh, in- interpreters. Um, so basically, they were essentially part of the the colonial apparatus. Colonial apparatus. But essentially, once they able to learn the, they they once they became involved in that system, that system, they were able to use their position in order to advance uh, the the cultures, uh, advance the the country uh, culturally and socially. Um, particularly, um, like so, the case of people like um, so, in the South Vietnam in 1860, there was a man called uh, Jin Ben Ki, and Jin Ben Ki was trained. Jin Ben Ki was essentially an interpreter for the French, but he also well versed in uh, in Latin and all other, and many other languages. He wrote the first, uh, contributed to the first Vietnamese uh, modern Vietnamese dictionaries, uh, started the first Vietnamese newspapers, um, and then in all you have people like Pham Quân and Nguyễn Văn Bình, and they all contributed to that. They used 
their skills as interpreters in order to uh, c- contribute to essentially a reimagination of the nation, but would still within that uh, cl- colonial apparatus. So it started like they do. They did things like starting out newspapers. They translated books uh, from French into Vietnamese, and uh, and vice and vice versa. Um, started also doing speeches as well. Um, and essentially, so essentially using that to in order to advance the, the country culturally. I've got a really silly question just to throw in here. So, um, obviously, a lot's going on in the 19th century. So you've got the major restoration, uh, China, and obviously now what's happening in Vietnam. In Japan at the time, you had people coming in, you know, various different translators and things, and it became really difficult to be able to translate because obviously there it was English and Japanese. In this context, we've got French and Vietnamese, um, and I'm assuming probably English as well, if I'm not mistaken. So, um, I mean, English. I mean, very limited. I think even like English texts were translated into French first before they even uh, imported into Vietnam. I think France sort of like they became the, the sole distributor in a way, the sole distributor of Western knowledge into mm. Vietnam. It's just it's really interesting. Do you know if any of these translators had a difficult time having to learn? I mean, they're two completely different languages. I mean, obviously, the gentleman you said earlier, he spoke Latin as well. So I'm assuming for him, it was a little bit easier. But in general, do you think it was kind of difficult for them to learn French and Vietnamese? Um, um, I guess, um, well, I mean, because even before um, the French arrived, they were already uh, Jesuit missionaries who were active in in Vietnam since the 17th 17th century. And they contributed to, they converted to the hundred thousands of people, of Vietnamese people to uh, Catholicism. And of course, you know, for church missionary, you need to be able to uh, be able to be well versed in the in the language you're convert- you're doing your conversion in. Um, even like the the modern or something, or like the the modern Vietnamese alphabet, like a more a Romanized version of Vietnamese, uh, Roman the Roman alphabet version of Vietnamese, were actually uh, created by church uh, missionaries in the 17th century. So that, and because the thing is that. Uh, French intervention into Vietnam in 1860 was based on the pretext of uh, Catholics uh, and Catholic missionaries being persecuted uh, by the imperial court at the time. So you are in, in Vietnam, you already had people who you know, are, are well, essentially a sort of knowledge and they, sort of, they, and they serve as intermediaries. Well, of course, uh, by once the, the French established, uh, consolidated their rules, they needed a new class of people, uh, the interpreter. Um, I guess uh, the difficulty would be that uh, the, the change, uh, the difference in the writing system because even by late 19th century Vietnamese was still being written within a ideographic system similar to Chinese mm. uh, because there's a set of characters called Han uh, so it's a character called collective called Han Nom like Nom is a, a set of ideographics uh, a set of characters that is used to represent everyday uh, speaking Vietnamese whereas it was more classical a similar style similar to um, to Latin in Europe uh, Europe and was commonly used across uh, what, is, what is then East Asia, China, places like China, Japan and Korea. Not just in terms of characters, there must have been changes in language too, like words and sayings. I think uh, yeah, a lot of the, uh, the French terms, uh, like French terminologies were imported into Vietnam uh, because uh, they were not, they were not there before. Uh, they were not there before, and even still these days, like even in the with the modern Vietnamese, there's, there's still a lot of words um, of French origins, like particularly words de- describing a certain set of clothings and whatnot, because a lot of them were imported uh, from uh, from France. 
Um, even like, but there also is um, there was also the change in literary uh, in on a literary front, uh, like new genres of, of literature were imported into Vietnam. That basically uh, the modern novel, the short stories, the diaries, and uh, even poetry as well. Um, poetry is also because a lot of the French literature, uh, French literature, were translated, were either being imported into Vietnam or they being translated into uh, into the new alphabet. But uh, you, like, uh, of course, uh, with a lot of this. Um, Performers and collaborators, they, they they advocated for the new writing system. They have to be they have to advocate for the new writing system in order to for these fundamental linguistic changes to happen. So as a way to uh, to separate themselves from the uh, uh, from the East Asian cultural sphere and to a more modern, uh, more modern, more Westernized cultural sphere. Um, but yeah, so I think in in language, but uh, in short, uh, the language uh, did change uh, quite. Quite a bit in terms of like importation of new terms and terminology, uh, either via uh, Chinese translation of uh, Japanese uh, Japanese translation, or even directly directly from French, or even just transcribed directly from French. I'm going to ask you if you've got any examples of the words that changed, or the words descriptive words that you mentioned. Oh, I mean, well, I think uh, like uh, if, if we look at the the first group, uh, like you know, new terms like um, the politics, um, society, uh, democracy. Um, they sort of, those terms were originally uh, imported from uh, Chinese translation up to Japanese translation, uh, from a Japanese Chinese translation, and they were read. They were written originally written out in characters, and then they, they would be uh, read out. That we uh, <clears throat> read uh, read out with Vietnamese lexicon and within the Vietnamese accent. And then in the second group is obviously direct uh, French terms, um, uh, direct uh, French, uh, French term being directly used. Like for example, um, like for, um, the word for shirt, um, semi, so semi or um, um, semi or the word for team, crew, equipe. So a lot of these terms were import, uh, are important, and they're still being used in within Vietnamese these, to, 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 to this day. Wow, so the French, I mean, obviously we're going to touch on other parts of cultural elements, but so far what I'm hearing is that French has had a huge impact on Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. so even though, um, even, though you know, even though in Vietnam not many people speak French uh, these days, but you know, they still use a lot of the French loan words um, in everyday conversation. What elements of French culture do we see arriving in Vietnam? Well, um, I think just um, uh, a lot of uh, just um, a heaps, uh, just uh, um, significantly a lot of them, a lot of new cultural elements was imported uh, from France uh, in, into Vietnam. Even things, for example, I think things like uh, education, um, the, you know, uh, the new forms of education, organized uh, like organized schools, organized classroom. Because back in the day, it was just uh, usually just you have one Confucian scholar in a village teaching the kids in the village. Uh, China, uh, character, classical characters, whereas now you have organized school, you have organized lycée, secondary schools, and they've been uh, the French established the first modern universities in in the rest of Indochina, like uh, for for a long period there was only one university in the rest of Indochina. Even for Laos and Cambodia was the Université Indochinoise, uh, Indochina, the University of Indochina, which was established around uh, 1907 or eight. And they also established uh, uh, a center, sort of like a uh, uh, like a center for cultural studies and archaeology called the uh, the French School of the, of the Far East, and that was also based in uh, based in Vietnam. And also, I think one uh, one example, one major example of cultural element being imported was the fine arts. Um, like new uh, like new artistic style was imported into Vietnam 
uh, particularly with the uh, started out with a particular painter called Le Bang Ming, who, who went to, who went to who actually went to study in the friend in the fine art in the school of fine arts in in Paris uh, in the in the earlier 20th century and came back and then uh, applied that applied his skills to create a new genre of, mo- of modern arts and then you also have people like Victor Tagu a French artist who moved into Vietnam around the uh, the 1920s and with a local Vietnamese artist they also established uh, the first uh, schools of fine arts in the rest of Indochina the Leco de the Beza, the school of fine uh, fine arts, and and um, of course, and you know that's and a lot of the, the lot of students there they they learn uh, Western style paintings, but also they incorporate Vietnamese elements into them, and a lot of, and they produce like essentially uh, essentially still one of the finest generation of Vietnamese artists to this day. Even a lot of them, uh, many of them have moved to moved to Europe uh, later in the career and became accomplished uh, artists in their own right. I think uh, I mean, like, a lot of the paint, a lot of the, these artists' works uh, nowadays are worth uh, thousands, tens of thousands, even like a million euros. Wow. And uh, same uh, education, but yeah, just new genres of, like I said, for people, new genre of literature as well. Uh, new genre. New genre of literatures and um, particularly poetry. It's like by by the early 1930s, um, you ha- uh, there was this, this thing called the new poetry movement, where uh, poetry was uh, was no longer subjected to uh, certain rules of, on verbs and right and stanza, number of stanza or verses, but more was more free flowing, and you can like improvise. Uh, uh, how you can have a, a limited amount of verses, and that started, but actually started with a. Uh, what a, what, what a particular writer who was Confucian trained, who was the subject of my uh, solicitation. And he wrote the first poetry that, that sparked the, uh, the new poetry movement, eventually uh, embraced by a new generation of uh, Vietnamese writers and poets who were actually educated in the new French education, in the new French colonial system, established, mostly established after the First World War. I want to throw something in the mix here. Um, food. Was there any cultural influence of food by the French? Um, yeah, I guess uh, yeah, food, I think, is also uh, a significant area. Uh, I think one particular major example is the, um, uh, the Vietnamese sandwich, uh, the, you know, the banh mi, uh, banh mi thật. Uh, banh mi thật. Um, so they imported uh, things like um, baguettes, which was originally consumed by the, uh, the French expat, uh, the colonial community, expatriate, expatriate community. Um, but eventually, it was also embraced by the local population. Other things like cafe as well, uh, coffees, uh, uh, coffee news like uh, even uh, coffees was also imported from from uh, from France. Uh, they were originally planted in, uh, in in Vietnam and also embraced by the local population. So Vietnamese coffee, and to the point that the Vietnamese coffee is now a distinctive brand, been uh, very popular and uh, becoming more popular worldwide. So those are two major examples. Of uh, so there are two major example examples of uh, you know the French uh, you know sort of the French cultural transfer into Vietnamese cuisine. But of course, a lot of this was done. A lot of this uh, immersion and uh, mutation was uh, adaptation was done by Vietnamese themselves rather than the French. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Do Vietnamese people look different after the arrival of the French? What happens to physical identity? Do they start copying Western trends? I think for, for, uh, on the parts of uh, I think you know on the parts of men is simply because you know uh, within the, the traditional Confucian hierarchy, men were always prioritized. They always the active members of the uh, the public sphere, so they were more quick. Even though Vietnamese women uh, were typically more relatively more independent compared to their other compared to their neighbors. Um, but the men work very quickly to uh, to embrace a new physical identity. Like I think, um, particularly what it, and that started with like the new movements in the uh, in the in early twenty late nineteenth century, early twentieth century. For example, the men they started cutting their hair short, having sleek back, uh, having shorter sleek back hair, because before the men Vietnamese men used to have really long hair and they would tie it up and into like a bun, and that would be wrapped around head like with a turban. Um, but after that, but within those movements in the early 20th century, they encouraged people to cut up their hair as a, as a science of uh, modernity and civilization. Uh, at the same time, embracing Western attires, suits, uh, uh, suits wearing a tie. Um, I think a particular example is like, uh, for example, in each Vietnamese family, you have an altar of like pictures of your grandparents, great-grandparents, grandparents and great-grandparents where you pay respect to them. So on my family's altar, you have pictures of my great-grandfather, my great-grandfather and my grandfather who was born basically around the, the first decade of the 20th century. Um, and the, the biggest difference between them is quite striking. Like one of them, uh, for my grandfather, he was wearing a Western style suit, short hair, very clean cut, whereas my great-grandfather had, was a, bit, had a long, goat, beard, long goatee wearing the traditional Vietnamese robe. I love that. That is actually really interesting, seeing this literal, actual cultural, completely cultural divide. And also, I think, and for women, it really depends on whether you are you you in the urban or rural area. But I think in urban area, a lot of women decided adopting um, because a, a lot a lot of them are adopting Western style dress, Western style clothing as well. They were, well, not even Western. They were still wearing the Vietnamese traditional dresses, but they changed. But they designed to make it a way in a way that would influence by uh, Western fashion. Um, Western fashion. Also, I think one particular striking uh, changes the uh, physical change was the the tea. Uh, because Vietnamese women back in the day used to dye the tea black uh, for beauty re- for reasons, for beauty reasons, but not only for beauty reasons, but so for health reasons. And by eventually, and by you know, when the French came along, by the 1920s, you have this new generation of urban women who had the, who were embracing the, the toothbrush and the, the toothpaste. Uh, so then, it, uh, so they would have a clean, have white tea. Uh, in in a way. Um, uh, it was kind of like a literal whitewash. <laughs> what happens to women's rights in the region with the arrival of the French? Uh, I think it was, there were uh, 
like I said, historically, well, women were especially, even though they were still subjected to the whole compared to Confucian uh, orthodoxy, but at the same they were relatively independent compared to the you know, uh, for example, like Chinese counterparts, like. Chinese women would still be providing their foods where women could walk around like barefooted. Um, but I think the with you know the modernization movement introduced a lot of ideas on the role of women within that uh, reimagination of the nation. And so the, the debate was on how do we in, uh, incorporate women into the movement, into the movement, into the, the household, national, into the national movement. What kind of role do they play? And so a lot of this idea was actually but uh, were influenced by. Um, by ideas within China because they were debating similar things. And all of this base was very male-centric, but there was a lot of the long line of how do we incorporate women in, into the nation and how women epitomize the nation. Uh, I think it was, so the writers, uh, I, that's the subject of my uh, dissertation. He was talking about how like women should play a role of virtuous mothers. You know, they should raise good people. They should raise good sons and good daughters who would eventually serve the nation. Um, and also the fact that uh, by the 1930s, late 20s and 1930s, women were, uh, were publishing their own journals and periodicals, uh, periodicals and a lot. And so I, when I look at those uh, periodicals, one particular one was popular in the South of Vietnam. Uh, they were talking about things like sanitation, uh, how to raise, uh, how, how to manage a family, talking about uh, sanitation. Well, also an interesting session was that looking at role models from other countries, the how so? How women can advance themselves by looking at looking at other countries, maybe something like in, in Europe or in within Asia. Uh, like for example, we're looking at like female MPs in Britain. Uh, articles discussing uh, female uh, female MPs in the British Parliament. And uh, so it's talking. About, so the, and the central message of all these writings was like how like how women can be better, how it can be modern, how it can be embraced uh, modernity. Um, but yeah, I think yeah, but, but yeah, it's, in similar ways, there was similar conversation about uh, the sort of uh, uh, the, the new woman and the modern versus the modern girl. And the new woman, the idea that the new woman is is productive, she, uh, she's courteous, she's, she's intellectually bright, uh, she she's contributing to society. Whereas the the uh, the new uh, uh, the, the the modern girl is is basically just. Uh, uh, flaunting around, uh, just uh, drinking and smoking all day, uh, being unproductive. Yeah, but uh, the, the, of course the women and you know, so they were talking about things like uh, women liberation. But of course, a lot of this uh, debate was happening. They were not only male centric; they were urban centric, and they were happening within very restrictive uh, colonial setting. Uh, because a lot of this, uh, like I said, even a lot of publications were subject to censorship. Uh, women did not have many opportunities, even like in the men themselves, did not have many political opportunities within the French, uh, within the uh, colonial, the French colonial apparatus. Do you want to get the vote in Vietnam? Uh, I think as soon as like around uh, once we gain independence, uh, around 1945, uh, in the first uh, assembly national assembly, in the first national assembly, uh, post parliamentary election around 1946. Oh, wow. It took that long for women to get uh, the vote in Vietnam. Yeah, well, I guess also because like in the uh, colonial system, there was not a, even for the men there was very opportunity for political representation anyway mm. because they were restricted to maybe like elder councils and whatnot. Um, but yes, it, I think that it was very. I think because the uh, the French colonial apparatus at the time was very oppressive. How does the Great War impact Vietnam? Well, yeah, I think Vietnam was actually was involved. Uh, in the French war efforts uh, in the in the First World War, uh, I think a hundred thousand men actually served uh, uh, in in the First World War, either as workers or soldiers, combat combat troops or work or support troops. 
a lot of the times. So I think the majority of them work as uh, um, uh, lorry drivers and working in ammunition factories um, across France. I think so, but a few, about a few thousand fought, fought, fought and died on the Western Front and in the, in the Balkans as well. Um, and you know a lot, of, and a lot of major political, the a lot of the performers I mentioned before, a lot of them were very enthusiastic about Vietnam being part of war efforts because it was seen as a as a way for Vietnamese themselves to prove that they were worthy of being members of a very courageous uh, empire. Uh, in a similar vein, as like maybe the case of uh, the Chinese uh, labor units and the Chinese labor corps uh, during the First World War, was the same thing with uh, soldiers from in British India and Africa as well. Um, but yeah, I think as during the war. Um, during, during the war, many of them were they were learning new skills a lot. So it, uh, learning new skills, particularly in terms of like engineering and uh, work, yeah, you um, um, handling uh, heavy machineries and whatnot. And it, it contributed to also it contributed to uh, the formation of new Vietnamese sort of Vietnamese proletariat. Um, but it was at the same time because uh, many of them witnessed this destruction of war. Uh, the, uh, the destruction uh, of uh, many of destruction of wars and how uh, Euro how uh, European empire who used to claim themselves as morally superior were devouring devouring themselves, tearing themselves apart, um, and being uh, more morally void. And a lot of this that was articulated by um, the later generation, you know, um, Vietnamese activists and uh, and activists and uh, reform and thinkers, so, uh, particularly people like uh, the future Ho Chi Minh who. In, who was in France at the time, who arrived in France near the end of the near the end of the First World War, and was involved with uh, with the overseas patriotic movements, and they, they talked at the same um, at the same time there was aspiration um, for the First World War for a new for for more positive more productive relationship between France and Vietnam, in which particularly by 1919 you had a new uh, colonial uh, a new governor general um, Ambisao who advocated. Uh, uh, harmonious collaboration, particularly harmonious collaboration between France, France and Vietnam. Um, yeah, so and it, it actually changed, uh, led to from fundamental changes within the cultural fr front as well. I think by 1919, that was when the traditional Confucian exam was finally abolished. Um, in in well, it was then the central was then Angnam, central Vietnam, and a new education system was being erected uh, to form a new elite. Um, but at the same time, you also and your know, radicalism. Also, you also had radicalism um, on a new front. Um, particularly, people like the future Ho Chi Minh and several others em embracing the ideas of the Russian Revolution, and it became involved and it became involved within the international communist movement. You've mentioned previously in a couple of the examples about um, urban Vietnam and rural Vietnam. But can you tell us a little bit more about this? So, how was urban Vietnam different? Uh, how, how did urban Vietnam differ from rural Vietnam? Uh, I think yeah, um, I think there was the dramatic uh, differences. I think because uh, Vietnam, even uh, into the mid nineteenth century, even the mid nineteenth century, mid mid twentieth century, uh, it was still majority. It was still, uh, the majority population was still living in rural villages. They were still living in villages, particularly in the north and uh, the central Vietnam. They were living. They were still living in villages that have been around for centuries. Um, and because basically uh, they were sort of uh, inapproachable by the French colonial apparatus, untouchable, almost untouchable by the colonial apparatus. Uh, even like even way before the French arrived, they, they, they'd be saying that the emperor's edit stopped at the village gate. 
Um, so change in uh, changes into the rural Vietnam were much slower compared to the urban areas. Because urban area in place, imagine in places like uh, uh, Saigon, now Ho Chi Minh City, and Hanoi, the French were building. They were investing in infrastructure projects, were building bridges. They were demolishing old buildings and, and then creating new building opera houses, uh, government buildings uh, in the French architectural style, uh, basically transforming them into little Paris or Marseille. And so many people, and also you people, uh, a lot of these thinkers, when they moved to this area, became that was where that was sort of like a that the doors to uh, the western to, uh, the, to to the modern west. Uh, so and like I said, a lot of changes were happening faster within urban area, particularly with like things like print and press. Even because even then, because ninety percent of the population was still illiterate, um, so you know readership was uh, readership was still limited, and it's hard to estimate circulation. Uh, you can't because you can't estimate. You can't uh, determine the circulation just based on the numbers of copies sold. So it may be things like oral transmission. But I think you know, the, um, I think in rural Vietnam, even people were aware of these kind of changes because there's been a tradition of uh, oral transmission through, uh, say, to um, poetry, the so poems. They pick a lot of this. For example, a lot of this idea, a lot of the ideas in the with the Tonkin Free School in 1807, a lot of it was transformulated into poems, and those poems could be orally transmitted. Across this large section of population, but like I said, was, but uh, but like I said, the changes was much lower in rural Vietnam. See, because of the the village structure, this whole uh, the village structure. Tell us a bit, if you can, about the difference between east and west with regard to Vietnam. Well, I think yeah, I think um, uh, the the east and west uh, dichotomy is sort of it was an on has been an ongoing debate in um, uh, in Vietnam, even from the late 19th century, up into, in, even into, I think even today, people are still talking about um, the different East and West. Um, I think yeah, because uh, when the French was uh, by when the French arrived at the established rule, people realized there were differences in mindsets, uh, with, uh, mindset, and there was a, I think, a, within a large part uh, within that uh, group of uh, thinkers and, and intellectuals, they were some of them were opting for complete. Uh, abandonment of Eastern of uh, Eastern values and philosophy in in in, in order to embrace uh, the West uh, modernities uh, the ideas of uh, that the West was more logical, whereas the the East were more were illogical, and then the East had Confucianism, and then the West had things like democracy and science. Because there were also a group of people who who were trying to uh, re- reappropriate uh, Eastern values, uh, Eastern ideas, and her- cultures. Into uh, into the new system, into the new co- so uh, sort of like a uh, guiding philosophy uh, when while we're still trying to modernize. So so essentially, it's like a um, like a compromise, you know, it's like a compromise, a mixing of both. And then there were people who still, and it was very small, but small and uh, decreasing number of people trying to hold on to the new uh, to uh, to the old ideas you know, or institution. But I think well, during that time, there was an awareness of that differences. And, and they often use that to point out maybe cultural difference, deficiencies in, uh, in Vietnamese, yeah, in, in, in Vietnamese uh, because a lot of them were very influenced by uh, social Darwinism. Uh, and that we need to, and so that, that comes to the idea of improving, one, uh, improving, improving oneself, self-improvement through education, uh, all of it, and all of it, em- embracing the new learning. So, and also, it, it's, it's also expressing what is called the old learning and the new learning. The new learning is things like science, mathematics, uh, Western philosophies, and the old learning will be Confucian, Confucian texts and classics, um, Confucian texts and classic. Um, so the people were divided, so there were people who were divided into the, think the intellectuals at the time were divided into those groups. 
And increasingly by the 1920s and 30s, you had this, the people who were already embracing uh, the new learning, completely abandoning the new old learning. Um, also, as I mentioned, the, the last Confucian exam were held in 1919. So and it was eventually, eventually abolished, eventually letting the way to what is called um, uh, the, new, uh, the new learning. Um, because so, but then again, a lot of this debate was still uh, ongoing, even into the Viet, into the Vietnam War, where um, particularly in South Vietnam, at uh, South Vietnam, they were trying to still trying to reappropriate uh, Confucianism to fit for the modern age, and that was that's still like a subject intense debate amongst the intelligentsia. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. That was absolutely amazing, giving us this amazing. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about the French colonial war in Vietnam. It was absolutely amazing. Something that we've been dying to have on this podcast. And I hope our listeners are extremely happy with the gap that we have filled for them. So thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Join us tomorrow when Serena Dyer will be with us to talk about buying British. Now, this is something that gets trawled out as patriotism. Every time there's a national crisis, you should buy British and be patriotic by spending your money on British goods. We're going to look at how that's changed and evolved over time and whether it still has any relevance today. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 